Well, beloved, let's behold God's glorious word by turning to Colossians chapter 1. We will be in verses 3 through 8, as has just been read for us. And as you turn there, perhaps you can listen. You're probably familiar with the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. It's an expression that's over 400 years old. And if I were to give some modern context to that phrase today, uh, when it was established, pudding was something quite different than what we uh, consider it today. It was a savory dish in England. But if I were to put some modern context to it today, have you ever ordered a pizza with stuffed crust? And you get the pizza, you know the stuffed crust is coming, and you bite into the stuffed crust, and sure enough, there is cheese in it. Now, I'm not meaning to offend anyone who has a gluten or dairy allergy, but you know that it's stuffed crust once you partake in the stuffed crust. Simply this, proof that is in the pudding means that something must be judged based on its results. And that will help us today as we consider Paul's word to the Colossians. In this passage, Paul informs the Colossians that he thanks God for the work that God is doing amongst them through this glorious gospel that we talked about last week. And he references the proof of this gospel work. And he praises God for it. This gospel has been preached to them. And this gospel is bearing fruit within them. Now, last week, if you remember, we discussed that Paul wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were under siege by some false teaching, some people who were teaching that Christ wasn't sufficient. And Paul is reminding them of the grace and the peace that is from God the Father given to us through Jesus Christ. And as we discussed last week as well, those who believe in this Christ are now found in Christ. They're now in him, a part of a new family, a part of a new people. And if you have trusted in Christ, if you have believed this glorious gospel, you are now in him, set apart, a new creation, a part of a new family. Now, We've titled the sermon today, Thanks Be to God for the Gospel. And we'll unpack what that means here. There's three things I do want us to see as we observe this text today. First, I want us to see how Paul thanks God for the work that is transpiring inside of the Colossians, inside of their hearts. The second thing I want us to see is how do we recognize the proof of this gospel work? Paul helps us identify some markers of this fruit. And then the third thing that Paul demonstrates for us is the importance of testifying to this work. How does the gospel bear fruit? How is it bearing fruit both here and all around the world? And by doing this, Paul is implying that there is no other truth. So when we observe the markers of this glorious gospel, we can rest in the fact that this is the only truth found in all of the world. Now our first point today is this, thanking God for the gospel's work in others. 
Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. It's what Paul says. Though the beginning of a letter, Paul often gives thanksgiving uh, to the Christians he's writing to, though he doesn't do it always. We see in the book of Galatians, he says hello, but he doesn't give thanks. He goes to immediate reproof and correction because of how badly, how severely they had swerved from the gospel themselves. But here to the Colossians, he has genuine thanksgiving in his heart for what God is doing in them. Now, remember, Paul is writing from prison and he's writing to a people that he has never met face to face. We see this in Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. That's not exactly a typical situation in, what, in which we often give thanks. Not having known the people face to face and then being in prison. Yet that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Notice with me that he's paying tribute to God for the work that he is doing in the, through the gospel in the Colossians' lives. He mentions to them that we always thank God the Father of the Lord Jesus when we pray for you. Now, more than likely, he's saying we, uh, including probably Timothy or some other brothers that are with him as they are praying for the Colossians. He says he always prays for them. Now, always doesn't mean every second of every day. I think we'll all admit that we don't have the capacities that the Son of God has who prays at all hours of the day as the high priest of heaven. But we can rest in the fact that, they pray, that Paul prayed often for the Colossians, and we know that Paul was faithful, we know that Paul was disciplined, and so we can rest in the fact that as often as Paul prayed, which was probably a lot, he prayed and thanked God for this work that was transpiring in them. Now, as these false teachers had descended upon the church, the Colossians were still bearing fruit so Paul thanks God that these men and these women had not swayed from the truth, that they were standing firm. Now certainly, Paul was thankful to God for the Colossians themselves. However, here, he's specifically thanking God for the work that God is producing in the Colossians, which is faith, love, and hope. We'll unpack those markers here in just a moment. He's thanking God for the gospel, the fact that the gospel has reached the Colossians. The gospel is the word of the truth that God uses to bring people into relationship with him through his son, Jesus. And it's the Spirit's working. We'll talk about this as the, as the passage unfolds. The gospel is the word. It's the vehicle that God uses over and over again in the Christian's life, reminding us of this truth of Christ. We can never grow weary or old or tired of it. It is as glorious now to listen to it and listen about it as we sit here today as the first time we ever heard it. It is a glorious truth, and it is the only truth. Now, most expressions of thanksgiving, even prayers of thanksgiving, are centered around gratitude for personal benefits and blessings. And it is certainly a good thing to be thankful for the things that God provides. I think we would all agree with this. 
1 Timothy 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. If we were to take inventory of our own lives, we recognize the gifts that God has given us, just daily bread being one of them. May we be like the old saint who says, I cannot believe we get Christ as well as bread and water. We also have uh, blessings through family and friends that God has given us. Look around us and see the tangible blessings that God has given to us from his right hand. We see that we have jobs. We're able to provide for families. We're able to uh, be together. We're able to drive in vehicles that God provides. It is good and godly to thank God for these things. We see that God even cares for the sparrow in Matthew chapter 6. How much more does he care for us? We know that God cares for us. But we can learn something different here in this prayer from what Paul is thanking God for. He's thanking God for the work that God is doing in these brothers and sisters that he has never met. I have a question. Do we give thanks to God for the work that he is doing in others? Do we thank God for the work that he is doing amongst us? If we are honest, a lot of the times we are hugely self-centered in what we thank God for. If we thank God at all for anything. Have you ever been around someone who's not very thankful for things? I, I hope that at least we would be thankful for the things that God has provided us, including, most importantly, the gospel. But here he's thanking God for the work that he is doing in others. Oftentimes we don't consider the work that God is doing in others. Or we are envious of the work that God is doing in others. But there is no envy here in Paul's voice. I'm sure that he would prefer to be outside of prison and with the Colossians. But he is thanking God for the work that he is doing amongst them. Which also means this. He's not thanking the Colossians for their own faith. He's not thanking the Colossians for the way that they love one another. No, he's thanking God for the work that he is doing amongst them. In fact, as far as I can tell, the only time I see Paul thanking anybody in the scriptures for the ministry that they're doing is Priscilla and Aquila in Romans chapter 16. Most of the time, he is thanking God for the work that God is doing inside of his own people. Now, when you have been with your brothers and sisters, have you in the inner parts of your own heart have you thanked God for the work that you see in them? Have you thanked God for the faith of so-and-so as they're walking through struggle, trusting in Christ in the hard days? Are you thanking God for the love that's being displayed, the sacrificial love that's being displayed in so-and-so amongst you? This is a great practice for us to consider. I heard recently, this week in fact, of a sweet little testimony that occurred inside of our own congregation. Uh, during our corporate prayer hour a few, or a moment a few weeks ago, an older saint and a younger saint, instead of choosing not to pray together, they decided to introduce themselves to one another and to care for one another and to pray for one another in that moment. 
They got to learn who each other were and to, to hear the needs of the other and to corporately pray for the prayer point of that day. Here's what it looks like. Let's thank God for the work that he's doing in those two saints to come together, to not choose the self, but choose the other. We testify that to being a work of the Lord. Now, what specifically is Paul thanking God for to our second point today? Recognizing the markers of the gospel's work. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the laid hope laid up for you in heaven. These markers of love, faith, and hope here in Colossians are the grounds for Paul's joy and his thanksgiving. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, Paul mentions these three, probably most notably in 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. It's also mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. However, here, it's a little bit different order, and Paul is unpacking an, a little bit different truth about them. Now, notice with me that each of these, faith, love, and hope, have objects attached to them. Paul is thankful for their faith in Christ, their love for all the saints, and for their hope that's laid up in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's dive in. Faith here is in Christ. He didn't just mention faith by itself. Like believing in something irresponsibly or half-heartedly or an ill-informed kind of fideistic faith where we're trusting in something that we really don't know a lot about. He's not believing in some of God's truth. He's believing in all of God's truth. Or that's what he's encouraging and commending the, the Colossians, their full faith in Christ one theologian said, faith is God's work in us that changes us and gives us new birth from God. This is from John 1.13. We're not born of blood or the will of man, but we're born by the will of God. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favor that it would risk a death of a thousand times trusting in it. This is what Paul is thanking God for. Faith lives and it acts in Christ because we have union with Christ. Faith relies upon him continually. Faith points to the trust that one has in Christ and the gospel of Christ, which is the vehicle in which we learn who Christ is and we believe. Faith is laying hold of Christ, both in our justification, which means this, the time we trust that Christ's death was enough for us, and we're made righteous by believing in it, and then also trusting in Christ as we are changed in sanctification. We don't just believe Christ one time, we believe Christ all of our lives, and we're being shaped and formed through faith in him for the rest of our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says this, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We keep 
returning to the glorious cross. Guys, that's why we gather week in and week out to hear the gospel. We keep returning to it because it's glorious. We keep coming back to it because we must be reminded of all the things that we're not and all the things that we are in our own sin and depravity, and we must be reminded of all that Christ is in his glory. I, uh, I remember overhearing a conversation between a man and a woman after they heard, heard the gospel preached during a luncheon. And it wasn't a church function, but it was a gathering of Christians. And the lady in the conversation said, aren't you glad that we can continue to trust and believe in this glorious gospel? It's like new every time I hear it. And the, old, and, and the, and the male in the conversation, a saint said, well, I did that a long time ago, so I'm good. I don't mean to disparage the brother in the conversation at all, but he is missing a huge point about the gospel. It stays with us over and over again. In that case, he is trusting in a moment in which he believed rather than the one who is finishing our salvation, the one who is the author of our salvation each and every single day. Do you trust in Christ? Is your faith in Christ do you trust the character of our God? When he says something, do you believe it? Do you believe what he says about your sins being atoned for or forgiven? Do you believe it? Do you trust his perfect will and, and glory? Do you? It's a, it's a fair question. This is the question that we must continue to ask ourselves our faith is proven real when working through love. That's actually what Galatians 5 says. Thus, true faith in Christ produces love for others. So let's look at the second kind of marker of this gospel proof. Love for all the saints. Now, when we say love, we must not define love the way that the world defines love. According to an article in Time Magazine, which I'm sure pulled from any dictionary that it wanted to, it defined love in this way, an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels or emotionally experiences. That's how this Time Magazine article is defining love. Used in a sentence, I love the Dallas Mavericks. I love going to the movies. I love this person because of what they stand for. Or I love this person because they make me feel this way. I think it'd also be appropriate to add to the definition that the world has, has uh, included in these parts by talking about how we must accept someone in, 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 if we're going to love someone. Like, you don't love me if you don't accept me for who I am. This is the way that the world defines love today. We see it all around us. Now, Jesus says to love those that love you. What's special about that? Even the Gentiles do that. He mentions that in Matthew chapter 5. But biblical love is quite different. At its core, biblical love is a true consideration for the interests and the needs of others. It considers others before it considers 
itself. One theologian defines biblical love like this, this self-denying concern which puts the best interest of others as a priority in our relationships to them. Love says, I will look out for the best interests of my friend, of my family, of my neighbor, of whoever, whoever I'm loving. You are looking out deliberately for the best interests of others when you engage in love. Another theologian describes it as this. I love this definition. Love is a force within it that seeks to give itself to others. Not as a vacuum that selfishly craves to be filled by what others can give to them. Think about the contrast there. Certainly affections can be a part of love. Certainly acceptance can be a part of love. But oftentimes we must speak the truth in love. And that can be an act of love as well. Remember the best interest for others is the focus of what love actually is. And the world wasn't introduced to this type of love until Christ introduced it to the world when he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You can love because Christ first loved you. You can love one another because Christ has first loved us. Now, and notice the scope of this love here in the text today. It's for all the saints. It's a love for all the Christians in this church. Paul is commending them for loving one another. He's not saying you've loved one another well inside of your classes or your age brackets or your backgrounds, you know, settings. He's not saying that you've loved one another well in those who you walk with in small group. No, he's saying your love for all the saints. He's not saying that you've loved well just your friends and those close in your inner circle. No, he's saying you have loved well all the saints in the local church. I'm afraid sometimes our natural human bent is to love and to serve those who are most like us. With our same interests, same age groups, Now hear me, we should love those that are in our families and are in our closest groups and the Lord provides close community for us to walk in. But if we're honest, they can serve as distractions if we are not learning to love everyone who is in the congregation. Love for all the saints. This type of love is actually a sign of the Spirit, as we see in verse 8. And may known to us your love in the Spirit. This type of love is not man-centered or man-created. Friends, there are people within our congregation who are alone and who are suffering that need to be cared for and considered. Brothers and sisters, there are people in our congregation who are going through major struggles in life right now. And either they have not shared those burdens or we have not asked about them. 
Now, there's different types of love that we can talk about. I mean, we're even called as Christians to love our enemies. But looking at the context of this letter to the Colossians, he's talking about a love that is surfaced inside the body itself. How are we loving our congregation? Look, being intentionally loving is really hard, and it's often inconvenient, and it's impossible for man by himself. But the Spirit is able, and the Spirit is willing. My encouragement, just in a couple of applications, married couples, invite a younger married couple into your house. Get to know them. See how you can serve them. Tell them of your glorious gospel story. Be intentional with them, even if you don't know them very well. A great way to learn how to love someone is to get to know them so that you can then apply certain applications of love towards them inside the body. Families, invite someone who's single over to your house. This is something that our family loves to do. We love to have widows into our house and we love to have college uh, singles into our house. We love to have singles into our house of all ages. We even encourage our children to ask them questions so that they can learn to be considered of what it looks like to be interested in somebody else's life. This is love for one another. Caring more for the interests of someone else than your own needs. Paul is demonstrating here love for the Corinthians, or excuse me, for the Colossians. He's reminding them of this truth. He knows they know the truth, and yet he's reminding them of it, which is a loving expression in and of itself. If you're a young man, I want to encourage you. Would you go meet with some older saints in the church at Joe's at 9 o'clock on Friday? Just inviting all young men. Go sit with them. Hear their stories. Hear how the gospels change their life. Share your story. This is how we get to mix and mingle, care for one another, and love one another. Now, I want us to see here that both faith and love are based in this text right here in hope. Look with me. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul explains elsewhere that by faith we eagerly await the hope of righteousness. However, here I do want us to notice that the cause of their faith and love is their hope and the things promised in heaven. This is what is causing their faith and their love. Their hope is the basis of their faith in Christ and their love for one another. Now, I want to draw a distinction here between hope, the way the world defines it, and then biblical hope. Hope is not just a desire for certain things to be true. Like, I hope it rains today. (laughs) We need rain here, by the way. Lord, please. But hope expects, biblical hope expects the realities of God to be true. It knows that the realities of God are true. Therefore, the things we hope for are the things that are secure. The things we hope for is Christ and his kingdom. We know that Christ is at the right hand of the Father right now, praying for us, interceding for us. 
He's glorious, he's defeated death, and he's gonna come again for his church, and we long for that day. Our hope in him is secure. And that actually affects, that truth actually affects our faith in Christ day in and day out. And it actually affects the way that we love one another. Now, we don't often think of it that way. Oftentimes we think we have to have faith in order to have hope. But hope is a thing that is secured. We belong to Christ And because of that truth, that's a reality. That's not just a hopeful wish. That is a certainty. And as we get deeper into this letter, Paul's going to unpack that for us even more in Colossians chapter 3. The opposite of hope is despair. Despair is actually all around us right now in this culture. You can hear it everywhere. The testimonies of people that you talk to, the life experiences that they have, news channels that we listen to, everything's kind of going to Hades in a handbasket. Maybe that's the Baptist way to say it. The world is desperately trying to find hope in the things of the world. The Christian has their hope set in places that cannot be touched by moth or rust. But the world's hope is affected by moth and rust all over the place. Think about the the desires that people have to live a long time. The the emphasis put on health, this anti-aging movement that has transpired in the world. You know, the older try to look younger and the younger are trying to look older and it's crossed rather than just resting in the fact that our days are numbered and we can't do anything about it. Then we're going to meet our maker. Think about the hope that the world puts in money. The more money I have and the more things that I can acquire will help me to be happy, will help me to have status, and will help me to enjoy more of this short little life that I have that's hopefully extended by the anti-aging process that I've also invested in. We put our hope in experiences. And just from spending money to travel, which none of this is bad in and of itself, it's just, is this where your hope is? Are you putting money towards things that you hope are gonna bring you happiness that after it's over, it's, 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 done and, it's gone and, and done? Think about it on a Tuesday morning when you're at work and it's 9.30 and the clock is just barely moving, your hope is set on the weekend. Like, I'm going to be with friends. I get to go to the movies. I get to... Well, that's fine because those can be an enjoyable things. But if that is where your hope is, rather than your hope set in things that are secured by Christ, man, it's going to shrivel up. Perhaps your hope's in politics. Look, I get it. Sometimes we love it when someone we vote for gets voted into office. And we're like, yes, it's going to be change now. And that happens until four years he's voted out or his term ends. 
Look, we want to be faithful in our politics. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our hope cannot be in our politics. Our hope is secured in the heavenly places. And that affects the faith that we have in Christ in the small things in life and in the big things in life. And it affects the way that we love one another, everyone in this congregation. Now, faith, love, and hope are not things that man intrinsically or naturally has within him. These specifically are evidenced by the work of God's Spirit, as we, always, as we already saw in chapter, chapter 1, verse 8. These are markers of the Christian. These are the markers as to whether or not the gospel has been received and preached. If there is not faith, love, and hope dwelling within you and within us, perhaps it is that the gospel's not being preached or we're not listening to the gospel or there's sin in us that we haven't repented of. These are the markers of the gospel. And he goes into the more markers of the gospel in Galatians chapter 5 as we see the fruits of the Spirit. But these are the main categories of the markers of the gospel. This is how we know if the gospel is being preached Is there fruit within the congregation? Are these people exhibiting faith in Christ? You know, if you haven't found a church home, I do hope that you consider for serving. But if you are looking for a church home, oftentimes we look for church home based on proximity, based on uh, style of the preacher, based on service times, based on service opportunities based on denominational affiliation. Choose a church based on whether or not they preach the gospel. And the two ways you can identify if they're preaching the gospel is the first is the preacher preaching exactly what's in the word. So what the preacher says can be compared to what is written in this holy word. It's the first one. The second one is this. Do the people have their hope in the things that are secured, the resurrection of Christ, Is there faith in Christ and do they love one another? This is how you can identify these things. Now, see where Paul takes them. He reminds them of how the gospel works and how the gospel came to them. The third thing he does, the third thing we're going to look at today is this, affirming the testimony of the gospel. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which came to you as indeed indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing. The word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Paul reminds them that they have received this truth. It's not new news he's sharing with them. He's reminding them of of the good news in a new way. He's simply testifying, yes, you have heard the gospel of hope, the gospel of God. It is the truth in its fullness. No matter what you hear from these false teachers, hey, you've got Jesus, but you need to experience more. You need to do more things. Paul is saying, no, you've heard the word of truth. It's born fruit in you, and this is how we know this. It's born fruit in you, and by the way, it's bearing fruit in the whole world right now. It's bearing fruit in Philippi, in Damascus. It's bearing fruit in Corinth, in Ephesus. It is exploding. The mystery of the gospel has been revealed. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And the gospel is the gospel of God. And his name is Jesus who encompasses the gospel. And if you believe in this Christ, you've received the gospel. 
and it bears fruit. It actually does a work in you. You've heard it, the world has heard it, and now it's progressing. This is what Jesus said in Mark chapter four when he said that there's seed that falls on hard soil, seed that gets choked out, seed that's devoured to the bird, and then there's seed, referring to the gospel, that gets implanted in good soil. And it produces grain, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. This is what the gospel does. When the gospel of God is preached, it begins to plant seeds of fruit, and it bears, and it grows, and it is glorious. Paul says these good works, these fruits of righteousness come through Christ alone. This is Philippians 1. Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for godly actions, for righteousness, for these good works that God prepared beforehand, that we would walk in them. Colossians, this is what I hear is happening within you. And not only you, it's bearing in the whole world. So how does this happen? Notice with me that the gospel came to them in verse 6. They heard it in verse 7. They understood it and learned it in verse 7. We know in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. So this is how the gospel seed is sown. Someone brings the gospel and someone teaches the gospel until everyone in the congregation has learned the gospel and has understood the gospel. And this is exactly what has happened here. A man by the name of Epaphras, this faithful brother that Paul says, he's a, he's a beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister. He is the one that came to the Colossians and he delivered this glorious gospel. And Paul's testifying to this. You've heard the gospel. This faithful brother has preached the gospel to you. The evidence of it is faith, love, and hope dwelling in you. And it's also happening in the whole world. Don't look to any other teaching. It's true right here. He's testifying to the truth right here. Have you heard the gospel? Have you learned the gospel? Is it a new phrase for you today? We, want, we have an obligation and responsibility to teach you the gospel over and over and over again. This is why we return to it. This is why Paul is helping them to return to it right now amidst this false teaching. I have a question for us congregation. Ask yourself, take your soul to task on this, on this answer. Are you like Epaphras? Epaphras is in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. He hears the gospel preached by Paul. The gospel takes root in Epaphras and begins to bear fruit. Epaphras, this one Gentile, from the Lycus Valley then takes the gospel back to the Lycus Valley and he begins to speak the gospel and he, this one guy plants three churches. He speaks the gospel in Laodicea and boom, a church develops. He begins to speak the gospel in Hierapolis and they receive it and boom, the church develops and grows and is bearing fruit. He he speaks the gospel to the Colossians and they received it by faith and they began to bear fruit. 
This one brother takes the gospel and he plants the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is our responsibility today. It doesn't matter where you work, where you play, where your family is. We take this seed, the gospel, and we speak it, and we trust the God who owns it will do the work behind it. Do you believe Paul regarding how the gospel works? That it's able to save the soul and work on the soul Do you believe it must be carried and it must be spoken? It must be taught and it must be learned. We get to do this when we go out and we get to do this to one another. This is how the gospel works. The good news is carried and the good news is about Christ. He's the only one who forgives sins. The scriptures say that only God forgives sins. So make no mistake about it. Christ is God. He forgives. He raises us to walk a new life. He takes all of our sin upon him on the cross. This great exchange. He who has no sin became sin so that we who have sin might become the righteousness of God. If you believe this, then continue to believe in this and you will be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. If you do not know this, we'd love to talk to you about this. In fact, here in just a couple minutes, there's gonna be pastors right here at the front. We'd love to talk to you more about it. Do you see faith, love, and hope in you? Do you see it? Ask, if you're married, ask your spouse. Where do you see faith, love, and hope in me? If you're single, ask some of those that you walk closely with. Do you see these markers inside of me? Perhaps you're a Christian and some of these are stunted right now. Well, this is the glorious opportunity for you to repent. And what repent means is to turn away from your sin and not just to turn anywhere, but to turn back to Christ by trusting in him. To walk towards him in faith. If you don't see faith, love, and hope, and you don't know about this gospel, we do have an answer for you today, and his name is Jesus. And we would love to talk to you about him. If you're with a friend, come down front to talk. Wait until after the service. Pastors will be available. Members of the church would love to engage with you about what it is that I'm talking about in more extended format. As we think about the work of God within us today, we cannot help but to be confronted by our own sin. Here in a minute, we're gonna sing a song. There's power in the blood. And there's this line, would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood. When we sing songs, we choose songs that were specifically to think about the words that we're singing the gospel that's embedded in the song itself. And then, church family, let us find our hope again in this glorious gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful that we do have hope today. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in our friends, not hope in things that are vanishing, but we have hope in something that is eternally secure. God, thank you. Would you renew our hope today?
God, would you allow faith and love to burst forth from within us to be demonstrated first to one another and then gloriously spoken to anyone and everyone that we meet. This work is from you. This work is not from us. God, help us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.